This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ali Lowe, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's really nice to have you. We, um, I remember you came to our um, Better Reading lunch uh, a few months ago now. I did, and it was so delicious, most gorgeous food. I vividly remember it, <laughs> going yeah. out to recreate some of those amazing dishes and playing. But, yeah, no, it was lovely. Thank you for that. And the best talent, really. Wasn't it just so exciting? I felt that there was a real energy in the room because of all the authors. There absolutely was. And, you know, like we were saying a moment ago, post-COVID could have been a, you know, a coming together of everyone kind of being very joyous that we were finally together in a room and, um, you know, getting to sit very close to one another and mingle. It was great. It was. It was great fun. Um, Ali has been a journalist for 20 years. She has written for bridal magazines, parenting titles, websites and newspapers in London and then Australia after she moved to Sydney 14 years ago on a trip that was meant to last a year. She was features editor at OK in London where she memorably stalked celebrities um, in Elton John's garden. I want to know that story at his (laughs) annual white tie and tiara ball because I'm a bit of a stalker myself. Um, She's here today to talk about her latest novel, The Running Club. It's a gripping twisty page turner full of secrets, lies and reveals you won't even see coming. Now tell me about the Elton John story because I've got a few stalking (laughs) stories to tell you. (laughs) Well, oh gosh, it was a long time ago because actually it's 17 years I've been in Australia now. So I think the bio... um, Oh, needs a bit of an update. Um, But yeah, so I was working at OK Magazine in London and every year OK would sponsor Elton John's um, White Tie and Tiara Ball um which benefits of which go to the Elton John AIDS Foundation so um I was there as in a journalist capacity dressed up to the nines and um and it was held in Elton's garden in Windsor and um yeah I just kind of spent the uh the evening wandering around following uh, famous people and going to myself oh my goodness that's so and so and there was a woman standing in front of me when um Elton was was talking and I was trying to look around her she had a massive hat on I was like who's this lady you know really can't see past her and then I realized it was Sharon Stone so oh, oh my goodness um it was it was amazing and um you know I had a good chat with the Beckhams and um yeah that was a bit of a career highlight that that evening um not not every day was like that but that was definitely one that I won't forget but you did have a pass to be there it wasn't that you were there oh no I wasn't climbing through the hedge with binoculars (laughs) I I did have a pass to be there and I was there with a few people from okay magazine because yeah they sponsored the event so so I was allowed in but I was still incredibly starstruck yeah it was great and beautiful garden as well Oh, I can imagine. Well, I um, and I've, I've, I'm sure I've told this story before, but I um, I've two memorable stalking incidences. The first one um, was uh, Elvis Costello. 
I was living in London, so that ages me, right? We know, <laughs> we know that. And I was on a bus um, in Notting Hill, and he was on the same bus, and oh. I just couldn't believe it, right? You know, he and took the bus. yeah, he took the bus, and I, I don't know, I think I was in my mid twenties at the time, and so when he got, I decided I missed my stop, and I decided to. I don't know for what reason, but I decided that I would get off when he gets off. Oh, that's so he got off at Holland Park, which is way after. I should have got off a lot sooner. And then I started following him down the street. Now, I reckon he knew. He must have known, because, but he's, <laughs> he'd be thinking, what? Like, why? And I followed him till he walked into his house. And then I was just like, Okay, I don't know what to do now. So I just turned around and went home. But at least you knew where he lived. <laughs> at least I knew where he lived. Um, and the other time was oh, Melina so Marquetta, Melina Marquetta, who wrote Looking for Ala Brandy. I saw her once working in Target at Leichhardt, and I just couldn't believe it. So I would then try and go back um, at the time that I thought she'd be there. She was working in the lay-by department at the time. Now, her and I are really good friends now. And she often says to me, why didn't you just come up and say hi? I said, well, I don't know. Then it's not stalking, right? <laughs> Daunting though, isn't it? It's like, should I say anything? Should I yeah. not? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, like but that. anyway, <laughs> it can be hard. It can be harmless fun. It can be. Um, okay, now tell me, what a career. I mean, this is a really big career. You've been writing for a long time. Tell me about growing up, where you grew up, and why the move to Australia. Um, well, I grew up in Cambridge, um, so about, what, an hour outside of London, uh, the university town, and, um, you know, had a, had a lo lovely upbringing with a brother and a sister who were older than me, um, and was always writing. So I'm sure you hear this from most authors, but I always had a notepad. So even if I was watching TV, I would have a notepad on the arm of the sofa, just in case I thought of anything. And everywhere I went, notepad. As a child. Yeah, as a child, writing songs, writing all sorts of things. I remember I wrote since, uh, a Christmas song that was entered into a BBC Christmas competition and didn't win, but my music teacher entered it for me. And there was always something, there was always something, a diary or, you know, a letter or something. I had numerous pen pals overseas that I'd met on various holidays and kept in touch with. So I was always putting pen to paper. Um so I can and, and you know at school history and English were always my top subjects and maths and geography were always like a solid fail um and I sort of carried on through um through my university years I went to Exeter and read history um loved writing my exam papers because I got to sit there and write and write and write and I loved it um and I wrote for the student newspaper while I was there and decided I wanted to be a journalist and um is that can I ask did you decide to be a journalist because you didn't see a career path to writing because I've heard that from a lot of authors they didn't think back then that there could be a job yeah. that would be a writer so they chose other jobs well I think for me it was more that I started writing for Expose which was the university newspaper and I realized I actually liked writing newspaper stories mm -hmm. And the idea of, um, you know, starting writing a novel didn't really occur to me because I, you know, presumed there wasn't, you know, <laughs> wasn't money to be made. I needed to go into a profession where I was going to earn money straight away, straight from uni. So I ended up signing up for um, a post-grad magazine writing course in Cardiff um, and did that for a year and went straight into a women's mag in London called More Magazine, which is now closed. But it was a sort of teenage mag and 
um, you know, various sort of saucy stories and things like that. And I think my mother was sort of a bit concerned. Oh, my goodness, couldn't she have gone to work for some kind of nice women's weekly magazine? Um, but I stayed there for a year and then I was interviewed for OK and went there as junior writer. And by the time I left, seven years later, I was features editor. Um, but the move to Australia was really um, very kind of surprising. It wasn't meant to happen. I just came out to Australia to see a very good friend who just moved out. Um, I spent some time with her and happened to send off my resume to Pacific Mags when I was sitting on Bondi Beach on a rainy day. And I just went to an internet cafe because, you know, 17 years ago, we didn't have the internet raging on our phones. So um, I sent my resume off and I, I had a call and I got a job um, at a women's magazine um, and flew back and said to my parents, well, I've got a job. I'm going to live in Sydney. And yeah, don't worry, I'm only going for a year. Um, and then, you know, suddenly I, I brought my boyfriend here with me, my then boyfriend, who's now my husband. And, you know, suddenly we decided to buy a flat and then we were engaged and then we got married in the Hunter Valley. And then we had our first child and then, you know, <laughs> became citizens. And before we knew it, we, we you know, we're Australians and, mm. and this is our home now. And the UK will always be home to some extent and you know family is all there for both of us but um but you know this is our children are Australian children you know they've got very strong Aussie accents they mm -hmm. you know they they <laughs> they know the national anthem they don't know the British one you know this is very much our home now yeah so mm. I've been thinking about that a little bit because I'm in San Francisco as you know and um I have I'm here to visit um, a friend that I've we've known each other since we were 18 and he married an American woman and they have three children and uh, as well and um, they are very American I mean my friend Bernard he's still got his Australian accent and he's been here oh, really? over 20 years yeah. well so have you yeah yeah <laughs> you still got your English accent yeah and um, and I wonder what that would be like as a parent where you have one accent, I've got to ask him, but, you know, you've got one accent and your children have got another. You know what? That's funny you should say it because it always fascinates me as well. I always yeah. think, what people think of our kind of dynamic and, you know, what must his, you know, or our children's friends think of, you know, their their accents and compared to ours and stuff. But it is quite weird, actually. My, my parents always comment on it. They'll say, oh, you know, one of them sounds really Australian today and, yeah, I don't really notice it, but sometimes, especially with my daughter, she'll say something and I'm like, oh, yeah, she's, she's a real Australian little surfer dude. Um, so it is, yeah, and they try and do English accents and they, neither of them, well, none of them can do it. The five-year-old doesn't try, but the big two do and they, yeah, they just can't yeah. get it. And, and you know, and, and in your case, they've got both parents with accents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although my husband's is slightly more Australian. He's definitely got a bit of a twang, whereas mine's right. still very much you know, Queen's English, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you're writing, do you think about place? Like, you know, I've I've often spoken to authors about this. I spoke to Cassandra um, Austin, who's an Australian living in LA. And, you know, so because even when I'm here and, you know, I only visit here, but I have been doing this for 20 years, but, you know, my identity is still Australian. So, you know, I think Australian, I dream Australian. I actually asked Petty Kerry this one time as well. What What is it for you? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, do you dream? Um, I, I think I do, but it's it's almost like such a subconscious thing now. And the books are automatically set in Australia. Yeah. Because that's what I know. And, you know, you write what you know, et cetera. Um, but it's quite funny because my publisher's um, Hodder in the UK. So I have to be quite careful that some words I use are quite sort of universal that can appeal to the UK and Australia. So, you know, I think I had Servo in the running club and um, my editor was like, oh, maybe we could make this more like petrol station that works for both um yes. and I have had a couple of people mention in feedback that why is she using using English words for things like doona and you know what and yeah that's the reason because even though I'm very much in an Australian mindset you kind of have to have one eye on you know your your audience as well but yeah the books are very Aussie and um when I was kind of trying to get into uh, one character Shelby's voice because she her stories quite a lot of them are in in you know, the past, they're set in the 1990s. I had to kind of try and get myself in a mindset of Australia in the 90s. And that was actually really hard because I'm kind of all over Australia today, but I'm not, you know, I didn't know much about the HSC and I didn't know, you know, how did people get their HSC results in 1990, in the mm -hmm. 1990s? Was it by post? Did they go to the post office? You know, did they go to school? There were things like that that I really had to research. Whereas, and how did we get them? I think it was by post. Um, was well, it? I can't remember, and I've just written the book. Yeah, it was yeah. by post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We uh, all got it the same day yeah, back yeah. then when the postal service was reliable. Um, okay, so tell me, Ali, tell me then at what point did you start thinking about writing fiction? I mean, you'd been um, writing all your career, and you know, and short form journalism is not the same, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd had a few attempts at writing. A few chapters here and there. I mean, when I when the trivia night came out, um, a friend of mine, my old flatmate in London, sent me a message saying, "Do you remember those three chapters you sent off when we were twenty one?" And I thought, "Oh God, yeah, I do." And I remember getting lots of blanket nose to them because I just sort of thought, you know, oh well, you know, I just put three chapters down and ch you send them. I didn't realise that the absolute, you know. The, the the craft of it I didn't have any clue that you actually really had to <clears throat> make these stand out in order to to get someone to look at them and sort of being young kind of sent them off but it was really I I put that to bed and just worked as a journalist um you know really because I needed an income um and then until I had my third child and I was working at a newspaper and I just decided to give it a go and actually I was speaking to Jacqueline Moriarty I was interviewing her for the North Shore Times and the Mossman Daily. And she happened to say that her friend, Catherine Heyman, ran a course, um, the Faber Academy Writing a Novel course, and she recommended it. Yeah, it's and fantastic. 
Yeah, and at the same time, my editor, my then editor at the North Shore Times, Tim McIntyre, had said to me, he'd read um, a cover story that I'd written on a pastry chef um, in Mossman, and he'd said to me, have you ever thought about writing a novel? And it was almost like these two things came together, and I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, here I am being told maybe I've got what it takes to write a novel or write in that style. And then I've got Jack and Moriarty saying, you should do this course. And I, and just, it was almost like the stars aligned and I applied for Faber course and got a spot. And that's where I wrote the bulk of the trivia night. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I, I say this a lot and I am going to say it again. The generosity of other writers in this country towards each other, I find astounding. I mean, I don't know what occupation you can even liken that to. Mm. But honestly, there are so many times, even at that lunch, you know, what we had what 30 people, 30 writers in a in for lunch. And you would think there would be tension or you think there would be competitiveness. Maybe there is, but I tell you what, to me what it felt like was a genuine regard for each other. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I've not experienced any negativity, any anything but generosity. Yeah. From, you've given me goosebumps by saying that because it, re- it really is true. It's such a beautiful community and we all support each other. We all go to each other's launches. We all clap. Mm-hmm you know, clap for each mm. other, you know, we, we champion each other. And for me, that is just such a beautiful thing. And I'm, you know, I'm lucky I've got outside of writing, I've got some really wonderful girlfriends and, you know, and that's really important to me, the idea of women supporting women. And that's something that I want my daughter to learn as well, that women are your best allies and not just women, I mean, the male mm. writers in this community well as well, of course. Mm. Um, but, you know, the bulk, mm. um, that I've met are, are women and, and it's a case of women supporting women and people like Sally Hepworth who's been so mm-hmm. generous to me and you know with providing a blurb quote and you know just so many wonderful writers Burr Carroll who you know just sort of supplied quotes and, mm-hmm. and read the book and and said oh I'm coming to your launch and mm-hmm. it, it, it's been fantastic actually it's just so heartwarming and you know I, I think it's one of those things that you can't we can't compete anyway because we're all you can't steal someone else's inner thoughts you know we all love reading we all want to read each other's books we're all excited by a new book on the market you know it's mm. it's definitely such a sort of mutually supportive community it's wonderful mm. when I first started this business when I first started better reading a few years ago now I guess eight or nine years ago anyway I can't remember but I went to Perth and I contacted Rachel Johns just to say that I'm coming and then you know and she spoke about every other writer except herself, you know, mm-hmm. you should meet Tess Woods, you should meet blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then, again, you know, we got them all in a room together and it was just the most amazing night. And I do feel an energy that comes from from that for, you know, from women supporting each other. Um, Rachel in particular as well. She's absolutely she? wonderful. She's just brilliant. And Anthea as well. Together they're just yeah. such supporters of women. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. Okay, so then you've, you've done the course. You've decided that you're going to write something. Do you have an idea at that point? I did have an idea because I'd been out for dinner with a girlfriend um, a few nights before the course started and we were just having a bit of a gossip and she said, oh, I've heard there's a group of parents at my school that are swingers. And I was just like, what? Really? Oh, tell me more. <laughs> really exciting. Nothing exciting like that happens at my school. Tell me, tell me. And she didn't really know the ins and outs of it. Um, but she she kind of, um, you know, told me what she knew. And I just 
came away from that conversation just thinking, oh, that's a brilliant premise for a book. Imagine if a bunch of parents got together at the biggest school fundraiser of the year, which is trivia night at most primary mm-hmm. schools, and certainly is at my school, and, um, and did this thing that they couldn't undo. And what would be the ramifications of that, you know, in terms of relationships, marriages, friendships, you know, and the possibilities to me were endless. What if someone got pregnant? What if, you know, someone you know, decided that their marriage was over as a consequence, you know, what if someone was insanely jealous or, Mm. you know, became possessive or fell in love, something like that. And I I couldn't stop thinking about all these ideas. So when we got into the Faber course and the lovely Catherine Heyman went round the table and said, so who's got an idea? I kind of very sheepishly put up my hand and said, well, my idea is about, you know, group of parents at primary school. And she was like, yeah, that's a great idea. That's very commercial. And I thought, oh yeah, okay. And and it was the only idea that had sort of really hit, you know, lit a spark in me and made me think, yeah, actually that would be, there's so much scope for drama basically. So I started writing it and it it wasn't easy. I mean, it was um, the second book, The Running Club was, seemed a lot more straightforward to me because I think that the difference- Because of you how- yeah, but also my confidence. Like I, f- I felt yes. confident in my voice. Whereas with the trivia night, I was like, oh, am I supposed to be writing like this? Or what, you know, do publishers like it when you do this? Or, you know, or should I, because I was writing to, to with the aim to to hopefully get a book deal. So I was thinking, of what, course, yeah. do I need to read this book? Do I need to do this structure of my plot? Do, you know, how, do I need to do this? Have I done this enough? You know, what tense should I write in? And I was second guessing everything. Um, you know, and literally just before I sent it off to my agent, I changed from third to first. You know, it's it was kind of fraught with what shall I do? Whereas with the running club, when I started, I was like, right, I'm gonna write in first person, I'm you know, gonna do this, I'm gonna be really confident. I don't feel like I have to have my inciting incident happen in the first five minutes. I'm gonna see how it goes and wait and see. And consequently, it's you know, it's a, a sort of cleaner novel, I think, and it had less edits. Um, and I certainly was less fraught with stress, um, which is interesting because a lot of writers I've spoken to have said, actually, the second one was harder because you know you've got to do it all again. But for me, it was, you know, I felt a little freer. I felt mm. um, a little more confident in my voice and, you know, to kind of think, well, let's just see where this goes and let's explore and let's have fun with it. And, you know, if it's not right, then it can be reshaped. Mm. Um but um, but yeah. It was, Talk it was, to me about the process of of writing long form. Like, were you used to coming to your desk? You know, I mean, I don't know what a, an article is, the size of an article for OK is, how many words that is. But, you know, a book, we're looking at, what, 60,000, 70,000 words. Yeah. How did, did you break that down? Like, what was your daily work approach like? Um, well, I suppose I spent, yeah, like you said, I spent many years in newspapers and magazines where, you know, you'd have a story that really you could stretch to 3,000 words, but you get given given the the on-screen like layout of the newspaper and you have to write on screen to 300 words and you're thinking, I could stretch this to, you know, so I had really been taught to edit down the whole way Mm. through my career, edit down, edit down, edit down, just the most important things. So I suppose in some ways that really helped me because I always had to have a strong start, strong middle, strong finish, and then pepper in the details in between. So I kind of took that into my writing, right? Strong start, maybe, you know, something happens in a prologue, strong middles to keep people interested. You know, don't want, a, they call it a flabby middle. You don't want a flabby middle, you want a strong end. So I kind of took that with me and I still apply that to my writing. But I guess I had to learn, and this is partly what I learned in Faber, was to stretch it out and mm-hmm. to kind of 
you know, learn to be a bit more descriptive. And even now when my edits come back, quite often my editor will say, oh, can we have a bit more description? Because I can tend to try and be a bit more and let's have something exciting happen and let's just keep the pace going. And I have to sometimes rein it in and go, okay, let's have a bit of backstory here. Well, let's have a bit of color. Let's have a bit of description. So it's it's a work in progress, um, Mm -hmm. but I've definitely become a bit better at letting myself go and kind of trying to imagine things more and, and let go on the page rather than, my goodness, I have to have something energetic happen here, you know. Mm. And so how did you get your first book published? Well, as part of the Faber course, we were required to um, submit a chapter to an anthology. Yeah. Um, so that anthology went out to agents in Sydney and um, and in London. And I had an email one morning waiting in my inbox from my agent in London who said, um, oh, I I was really interested in the chapter in the anthology. Would you be happy to send me the manuscript? And I was almost ready. I felt like I'd seen enough of this book and I didn't want to see any more. I was like, I cannot look at this anymore. And I was Mm. excited. So I sent it off to her about a week later. I I said to her, you'll have it by the end of the week, even though I wasn't quite ready because I wanted to give myself a deadline. And if that's one thing I'm quite good at is deadlines, because I've had to be for my whole career. You know, usually like, can you write this in an hour? So at the end of the week to me, it was a long deadline. So I I wrote it, um, finished it, like tweaked and plucked and pruned. and, And I sent it to her on a Friday night in London. And I said to my husband, oh, it's gone it's gone and my shoulders kind of I was like oh and relax and I think we watched a movie and then my husband got up super early to go for a run in the morning at about 5 a.m and I must have woken up about six and I checked my inbox and there was an email from my agent Marina saying I have been reading this at my desk all day I couldn't put it down I gasped at this moment which is a twist which I won't give away if you haven't read it but um yeah and and she said I absolutely loved it and I'd be really interested in representing you so we had a Skype call a couple of days later and the deal was done um and then Marina sent it on submission we did a few tweaks she sent it on submission shortly afterwards so that was January and then she sent it on submission I think in March um 2020 so it went on submission just as the world was shutting down yeah wow Um, so um yeah, that was that was kind of very worrying time because yeah. I was thinking, oh gosh, no one's going to be buying books now because no one knows what's happening with the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, about um, twelve weeks later, my editor Kim from Hodder um, made an offer and and we we signed for a two book deal. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it was very exciting. It was yeah, I will never forget that moment. Uh, well, we're out of time, Ali. Thank you so much. The new book is called The Running Club. All the best with it um, and lovely to chat with you today. Oh, thank you so much. Lovely to chat to you too. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape 
imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.